You're listening to a best of TMI with Aldous Tyler from Friday, April 9th, 2021. Enjoy. The views expressed on TMI with Aldous Tyler are not necessarily those of WSUMFM, the University of Wisconsin in Madison, or the Board of Regents. Oh no, my friends, the views for the next hour are all mine. TMI with Aldous Tyler, first Friday, April 9th, 2021, coming to you, as always, from beautiful Madison, Wisconsin. Um, now, one of the topics that uh, I do broach with some frequency here on TMI um, is socialism, just flat out. And it's not just because of good old Bernie Sanders. Mind you, he, of course, made the conversation much more public and, uh, frankly, more accessible to a lot of people because he started talking about it and people started looking into it. But that said, um, we've been chatting about it now for, I don't know, boy, I think since we started in 2009. And the fact is, is that I do firmly believe that it or something very much like it is probably the solution we need in order to overcome a lot of the woes that we talk about elsewise on the show here climate change, your, your um, uh, just income inequality, so many things. But I'm not the only one who feels this way, I'm happy to say. Uh, joining us today, author John Beecham uh, has a book out called 2020, Socialism and the Coming Great Crisis. And I'm very pleased to say he's with us right now. John, welcome to TMI. Oh, I'm very, very pleased to join you. And let me just uh, out myself and join in your intro and say I do happen to be a socialist as well. <laughs> well, you it know happens. What? It happens. Uh, I, 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 I uh, go between socialist and populist. Uh, populist, by the definition, as appropriate to what populism is supposed to be. Gotcha. Uh, not, not the, uh, not the bastardized version that the Europeans have uh, have decided it should be. Um, but um, but basically, yes, I'm I'm firmly of the belief that uh, any form of government we have should be working for the people, uh, period. And generally speaking, socialism is one of the forms that seems to do that very well, um, at least in my opinion. Now, in the uh, book that you've uh, put out here, you've got uh, mm-hmm. several different things that uh, that you wanted to make sure to get off your chest with, of course. I mean, you have, I believe, it's 16 theses on socialism uh, as the first chapter, isn't it? It is. Um, And uh, off my chest, yes. Um, In order to be helpful to people, hopefully, um, I don't really 
conceive of doing any, anything like this unless I think it's going to be helpful to people in terms of understanding the political situation that we're in. Some of the things you mentioned, we are living in a time of greater crisis, crises, and more acute crises, including the environmental crisis. We're also rushing towards, a, I believe, not rushing maybe, but, but heading towards a World War III, the way things are going with the U.S. sort of assault on Russia uh, and China. And of course, there's the rise of white supremacy, an absolute scourge. Um, and we do not as yet have a type of resistance or a big enough resistance to do what's necessary as a people in the United States and around the world to avert those crises. I mean, we just we know they're still mounting and they're not being stopped. Uh, the centers of power here in the United States specifically do not have the leadership and hear from either party that has the will or the interest to do what's necessary in order to avert the crisis. I mean, you don't have to look any further than the pandemic. I mean, almost 600,000 dead, uh, according to the government statistics, which might be low, because we know there's people in this country that are uncounted on a daily basis. So their deaths are going to be uncounted. You know, I mean, we know this. True enough. Um, yeah. And uh, look, how has this country handled the pandemic? It couldn't be worse. The richest country in the history world couldn't have handled this pandemic any, any worse. There's absolutely no organization of the response to the pandemic or very little, not what's necessary and no economic relief. I mean, people have literally been left to scramble and you well, even got it where just one more, sorry, one more thing, just oh, one, really quick. Just, you ha we have a thing here where like, I have an eight year old son. I have been unemployed since last June. Uh, luckily my, my wife works and is a nurse. So has a decent, you know, sort of union salary. But like we have to be like, okay, are we going to send him back to school? Are we not going to send him back to school? And the Democrats are the ones telling everybody to send their kids back to school. I understand well, they, people want their kids to go back to school. I have an eight-year-old son. I know, I know why people want their kids to go back to school. But we're in this position where we got to, we we, we can't, can we trust that they're going to actually send them back safely? Well, and that's actually a, a decent question, uh, given that just uh, the other day here in uh, in Madison. We had a daycare facility that uh, was had to be shut down because all of a sudden there were 24 cases out of uh, the the uh, kids that were going there and the workers there of uh, of the coronavirus, uh, specifically the British variant um, that is right. more contagious. And uh, and then now in Michigan, they're reporting that they've had a 24 percent increase in cases since their schools opened there. And um, and basically at this point, it's like. All of these assurances we were given that, oh, schools won't be any kind of a major vector, appear to simply be proven false by the facts on their face. Uh, one thing I did want to also add, too, is mm -hmm. that when people, um, when people hear someone like you or myself say that we've had the worst possible response for being how wealthy a country we are, they tend to want to poo-poo that as, as an exaggeration. But I would like to remind people that the United States makes up just barely more than 4% of the world population. And yet we've had, what was it, somewhere about 26 or 27% of the de world's deaths of coronavirus? More? That's Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there are countries... Uh, you know, I'm not sure what your take is on China. And I know people have different impressions of what China is. And I mean, that was the epicenter of the pandemic. And, you know, they you know how many deaths they've had since Biden became president in China? I believe it's a very low number. It's one. You know how many deaths there have been in the United States since Biden was inaugurated on January 20th? Now, that's... 
I'll tell you because I Go looked ahead. at it because I figured out it's 160,000 people have died. Yeah, that sounds about the, right, that, around the figure I was I was uh, reading. And um, you know, pl- places like New Zealand. You know, South South Korea, you just go down, you can go almost down the list. I mean, Europe hasn't done all that well e- either, honestly. But there's plenty of places that are with much less resources, like Cuba, that have done excellent, you well, know, considering. Comparatively. And John, one of the things I'd like to remind people, too, is that if they're going to go ahead and say, well, but wait a minute, General, Joe Biden came in on January 20th, and it's going to take a little bit of time to stop this train. I, I, would, I would say, okay, that would be maybe a valid argument, except that the death rate has not been slowing significantly. That's true. And also, you know what? We're in a surge. I mean, you know, like the cases are going up. And with Biden saying we need to, you know, everybody, we're going to get back to normal. We'll roll the vaccines out. You need to open your schools. Businesses need to be open. This is what Democratic and Republican governors are doing all across the country. Yesterday, there were 40,000 fans in uh, watching the Texas Rangers in Houston play baseball. Most of them unmasked, yeah. uh, you know, because the Texas governor said no mask mandate, even though the stadium said you got to wear a mask or hardly anybody there was wearing a mask. So you actually have direct policy of the Democrats who have said we need to open up and you have people who would be more likely to resist the government's policies, bad policies in the pandemic going along with it because they've generally been Biden supporters. So honestly, and I'm not blaming the Biden, Biden supporters, actually, I'm blaming the Biden administration and the, the capitalist class here for 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 putting the, the economy over people's lives. Well, I mean, they can write a check. They can just write us checks. You know what I mean? They've already done it. They and and, and it's not it's not like they haven't taken the value needed out of the economy already. Um, to give to people who don't need it, the the right. extremely wealthy, the top one percent, and then some, uh, that same amount of money spread amongst those of us who just needed to survive could go way further and keep us all very safe much longer. Oh my gosh! Like, there's no question. There's enough resources. There's even enough organizational capability. I mean, look at the way Amazon and just there's just a couple examples of grocery chains. Look at the way they've been to completely almost reorient the economy towards um, using, you know, obviously using technology to delivery. And, you know, are there any shortage of people who are signing up to be delivery drivers? You know, there's no, there's no labor shortage. There's no technology shortage. There's no, there's no uh, shortage in terms of resources or wealth. I mean, anything that this country wants, I mean, look, we just didn't have to have, uh, the type of uh, death toll and misery and economic woes that we've had here. I mean, can you, I just, I just, and homelessness is on the rise here in Seattle, you know, but you know what they've done here in Seattle? Homelessness is on the rise. You know what they've done? Hmm. And I was talking to this about my par- partner, Stephanie, the last couple of days, everywhere in the news here, it's like, there's crime, there's homelessness. You know, they're victimizing the people who, who, who doubly victimizing the people who have been the most, affected by including the black community here and across the country the most the most victimized by this pandemic then they just heap it on them uh when they try to just survive you know it's just it's absolutely disgusting so to just track back to everything i mean i think i think millions and millions of tens of millions of people are acutely aware that things are not working it's probably more than that um and it may seem overly simplistic but just socialism, a redistribution of wealth and power actually being in people's hands. I would say the working class's hands. I see no other reason. To me, it's just a, 
sort of a logical, I wouldn't even say moral place to come to that um, we need a different type of system or else, you know, we're going to have the problems we're having are going to get not just worse, they're going to become catastrophic. Um, I would, I'll tell you, like when I started, I've been a social, you know, I've been an active socialist for many, many years now. Um, you know, some have been a social, you know, some people have been a socialist for longer than that. I don't want to over, overblow it. But when I started this, I would never get on a radio show or write something in a book saying that, like, there's a catastrophe coming because, you know, who wants to predict that? Who wants to be the person out there, sort of, for lack of a better word, putting it sort of chicken little, littling it? Exactly. But, you don't want to be, you don't want to no. be put into that. Um, put into that category and, of course, put the word socialism with it because it's something that you hold near and dear to you and believe could be a solution. So you don't want to discredit it. I get that. Sure. Well, I also but, you know, it wasn't totally clear that that was I mean, as a socialist, I would say, look, something has to happen about capitalism, about the vastly uneven distribution of wealth or else there's going to be an explosion. Like I would say that to people. But, you know, you don't want to at that point, though, I, I wouldn't want to say, look, it, it's it's either like socialism or else. But it is. I'm just going to, you know, I mean, the reason why I wrote the book 2020 Socialism in the Coming Great Crisis, I know I'm doing a plug, it is because of that, because it literally I think people not only it needs to be there's a, you know, we assess the time period we're in. There, there needs to be an antidote to what we're going through, but it also needs to be impressed upon people that the times are very serious. Yes, absolutely. They're uh, very serious. Allow me to remind my listeners, if they're interested, that um, johnbeacham.com, that's J-O-H-N-B-E-A-C-H-A-M.com, is where they can uh, go and find more information about uh, your book, as well as the other things you've you've uh, been into and, and up to of late. Um, that's which true. I encourage people to do. Um, but uh, again, it's one of those things where if anybody finds anything of interest I'm doing, I try to make sure they have resources to go check further. So that's that's where I'm sure. encouraging that. Now, um, John, one of the things that um, has always uh, caught my attention is that even the foundation of this country, while not socialist in nature per se, um, the founders understood an awful lot about it. Even the simple thing about, gentlemen, we must hang together or surely we'll hang separately applies because i think that's where we're at right now in in the case of these world crises if we do not come together if we do not together find a solution and support each other truly which is what socialism is all about we're going to find ourselves hung on plenty of individual little threads well i i i, I agree you've actually brought up a subject i um have studied in in Todd, I'm also a college writing teacher, but I, I teach writing from sort of historical, political, and even current event perspective in the sort of founding of this country. Mm-hmm. But before I say that, let me say that uh, uh, the website where you can get the book, you can get the book on johnbeecham.com, but there's also other writing. I write poetry and flash fiction and science fiction. Yeah, all worth looking at. Yeah, totally. Is uh, mass-action.org. Mass Action is the podcast. There's a podcast and there's uh, articles there. Gotcha. And there's also links to some of my writing. So the, book, the, the book is ma- on both it's places. Ma- mass-action.com. Yeah, the, no, dot .org. Dot .org. Dot .org. .org. Gotcha. Yeah, cool. So that's uh, John Beachin's podcast and book can be also found at mass-action.org. All right. That's great. I, no, I appreciate you do. I appreciate you doing this at all. I really oh, do. Yeah. And, and helping help me get this out. So, so John, yeah. um, you were you were saying that this touch that me touching on yeah. uh, Ben Franklin's famous quote uh, comes back to what you were, uh, do at the college there sometimes. 
Yeah, well, I think it's it's very interesting because a lot of people don't know that this country was founded um, through means which people now would be like, oh, you can't do that. Because I, I really believe like the powers that be here need to face a serious challenge. The masses of people need to be prepared to take them on on all different levels. I don't advocate violence. I mean, I, I do, I do um, advocate people be, being able to protect themselves and defend themselves by any means necessary, like Malcolm X um, and others. Um, but <clears throat> I think if we were to be completely honest, that the powers that be here, I mean, just look at the way that the police forces act towards black people in this country, oh, yes. that mm-hmm. um, they're not going to go without a fight. I think people need to be prepared to fight. And the, the United States only exists because people fought. They took, in fact, they, they took up arms. The only way slavery was ended actually was by a war. I mean, to be totally honest. And that was a very important thing for it to happen his, historically that slavery was ended here. Um, people started fighting. People usually think Declaration of Independence, you know, so on and so forth, when, you know, a bunch of old white men, rich and mostly slave owners met and said, we declare our independence. But everybody also knows that the fighting started a year before that. And for decades before that, there was fighting in the streets. And, you know, I mean, people, uh, you know, the Boston Tea Party is an act of terrorism, straight up and uh, oh, just straightforward. By, straight by any modern definition, absolutely. Well, um, tea was, there was a reason why that the people in the independence movement here boycotted British tea because British tea was a drug, by the way, you know, caffeine, um, that the British empire, uh, you know, got in, you know, places in Asia and brought and brought to other places in order to sell. And, you know, people were addicted to before coffee, tea was a thing that people drank, Oh yes, you know, to wake up in the morning and to, and to stay awake at work. And that tea was potent mm-hmm. and it was east, like st- it, yeah. east india tea company made sure of that yeah yeah and so so dumping that all that tea into boston harbor it was millions of dollars worth of tea at the time do you know what i mean so it was like it was a very very serious act and so you know you you have that and then you also have the constitution here right that was by quote-unquote founding fathers which was which was drafted in secret by the way again by mostly um, slave owners, who, including James Madison, who was the principal framer of the Constitution, was very, very specific, actually. I actually read a, a couple passages to my students from James Madison and his from the um, the Articles of nothing the Articles of Confederation. What's that book where they're all put together? I think it's <laughs> I, it's not the the Articles of Confederation was before the Constitution. Right. I right. can't I can't remember the name of the book. It's letter something. It's really horrible. I can't remember it. But anyway, you know the, the James James Madison was arguing for the Constitution being passed, which narrowly passed. By the way, Thomas Jefferson. You mentioned no, you mentioned Benjamin Franklin. Thomas Jefferson was against it. So. Um, <clears throat> It, it narrowly passed, and the thing that they, they were very specific about is that the U.S. government should be set up to protect the ma- the minority of landowners from the majority of the rest of the population. That the reason, for example, the president, the Senate, and the Supreme Court were not elected, and the sen- senators were not elected until the 20th century, by the way. Oh, yes. Now, a lot of people don't realize that at all. Yeah. Well, and the reason why, the, and, and in fact, in the first election when George Washington was elected, there was no popular election, right? And in the and the president was only elected in six out of the 10 original states. You know, I'm, I'm sorry. There was a popular election in only six out of six out of the 10 states. Right. In most of those states, you couldn't vote unless you were a Christian and on property. Like, and not just Christian, 
you had to be of a you had to be like a Protestant Christian. Oh well, yes, because yeah. at that point, Catholic wasn't considered Christian, not in this country. Yeah, so they were very sure. The the the, the main driving force for those people who who actually signed the Constitution and tried to get it passed as the new framework for U- U.S. government, they were very specific about it being a, a a document to protect the ruling class, the majority of whom, especially the upper echelon of them, were slave owners. Own pe- hey. people based on the color of skin. So uh, let me just. This is the last thing I promise I'll stop no, talking right and hand you back over the mic. Uh, <laughs> this is this is what any type of just like fundamental change that needs to happen in human society. It needs to have uh, a revolution and all of the things components to go along with that. And there, so the main reason I wrote the book is not just to be another socialist thing. Another socialist thing is to say these times are really serious, and in order for us to do do something about it, we also have to be serious and 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 take our rights to do anything that is necessary in order to bring the changes that again are necessary into being. Not as a sort of um, not not as a not as a book, not as sort of an outline or some practice, you know, and not something in our heads, but like in reality, right? Something that actually is practiced versus just spoken about. Yeah, yeah. And you mentioned the sixteen theses. Theses. Well, some of those theses actually, you know, um, deal with uh, very specific things about how, uh, I, you know, people who are in the same political party, a revolutionary party. Um, Seriously, just straight up, like how you discipline yourself and what that means. Um, Discipline in terms of like how you uh, comport yourself, behave, and how you act as a political actor with other human beings. Um, Mm -hmm. The types of things you, I think, you should and and shouldn't do. The types of things you should advocate for. It's certainly important to not only have a cause to advocate for, but to not alienate everybody you run across when you're advocating for it, or you're not going to gain any support. Uh, and so I, I definitely agree with you there that, that yeah. it's that you need to be um, reaching people, not just um, showing them what you think, but mm-hmm. trying to get them to understand why thinking that way is something maybe they would also find attractive. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I, I totally agree with that. I also agree, and I don't think it's a contradiction, is that we shouldn't be afraid to say things that um, might, if they're necessary, the necessary things that might alienate people. Oh, yes. Um, because some of those things are just, I think, there's no getting around them, so we should just deal with people the way you just said, right? But at the same time, say, look, you know, I understand where you're coming from. I understand this is a difficult thing for most people. There's lots of disagreements. But for example, I believe the reason why China was able to do much better at the pandemic is because they have a different type of social organization that has socialistic characteristics about it. I have no, I know no other way to explain that situation of how China has done so well as the epicenter of the pandemic, losing barely anyone after the first month. I mean, when you're talking about a country of over a billion people and you compare it then to here where we have less than a third of that many people and you take a look at the death rates between the two not just month by month although that's also very very uh, illustrative right. um but also um just even in total and clearly we were not doing it the right way obviously there were better ways to do it and right. interestingly enough the closer you get to our model here of governance the more difficulty people seem to be having. Great Britain, for example, mm-hmm. um, and uh, or, or for that matter, even your your Italy's and other places, 
that throughout Europe are maybe a little bit closer to what we do here. Sure, they have um, some uh, social democracy built into their system to help buffer some of the uh, ravages of capitalism, but they're still closer to what we do here than, say, for example, China or someplace else, which, again, in China, over a billion people, and the way they've been able to handle the amount of deaths from this is just phenomenally better. Now, Uh I'm not saying that we should all absolutely mimic China, but, you know, it doesn't mean we can't learn from them. Oh, yeah. And and that's the bare minimum thing here. What has this country done instead of learning and cooperating with China? I mean, this, the media, they're all the D- Democrats. I mean, Joe Biden campaigned on I will be tougher on China. Yeah. And so his rhetoric, his anti-China rhetoric, and it, which is just replete all over the, you know, when you call the leader of another country a thug, which Biden does, by the way, mm-hmm. um, that's the type of language to use, not, especially during the pandemic. To, I mean, and when with a country that's doing better, right, than, than you are and could help. Uh, cooperation should be the deal, but this is not a socialist country. So cooperation is not on the de- on, on the table. For me, I, I characterize this as an imperialist country you're living, we're living in. And what has this country done? Because it's an imperialist country and a racist country, uh, from my point of view, they've demonized China. The attacks against Asian people here in the United States have climbed astronomically during the pandemic. Because even if politicians aren't saying it's a Chinese flu, which is just the most <laughs> god-awful thing you could say come out of your mouth during something like this happening. And we're talking about people who are in positions of power. But even if you're not saying that, at this point or at any point, like like sort of um, going after China in the way that the, the both parties have done is just despicable. And but But the reason why they're doing it... If people are paying attention, he admitted the other day, he said, you know what? You know what the deal is with China? They're not going to surpass us uh, as uh, economically or as a political power as long as I'm in charge. So in other words, the entire orientation of the United States to China is keeping China in its place. And that, again, is the most ridiculous thing I could you could ever think of, because, again, we're talking about one billion people, the biggest country on the planet. Are you following me? Well, yeah. And I mean, you when, can't keep. You, that's like saying human beings are not allowed to pursue their own basic economic interests as long as the United States exists. Well, and when you when you come across the very base definition of what creates economic value, and that's labor, um, if you have over a billion people, there's going to be more economic value in a country like China than in the United States. There's no two ways about it. And the fact that Biden would even pretend that we are still somehow dominant over China in an economic fashion is just yet another example of him being just a little out of touch. Well, that's the predicament we're in. And again, the reason why one of the reasons why I wrote the book, the predicament we're in is that nothing, there's no reason to stop other human beings from rising. You know, there's no, there's no reason you can think of to stop another human being and, or another country um, from rising you know, economically and prospering. Now, you know, I mean, there's a ho- all different issues. You know, this obviously doesn't apply to like a fascist country or something like that. Right. You know what I mean? Yes. But that that's not what's happening. China is not the aggressor and Russia is not the aggressor here, honestly. I mean, you, I mean, come on. Just the other day, the Biden administration was claiming that the fact that Russian troops are on the border of Ukraine is uh, 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 um, you know, sort of a catastrophic threat to world peace. 
Russia is on the border of Ukraine. Yes. Russian troops can be in Russia. I mean, do you know what I mean? Like, that's to say Russia has no right to have a military, basically. We, we would we would uh, we would find it equally ridiculous if somebody was criticizing us for having American troops on the border with Mexico. Um, it's our border as well. So yeah, well, you, well, you know what? The U.S. has troops on Russian on the Russian border. <laughs> yes, we do. And they facilitated Germany having troops on the Russian border for the first time since World War Two. I mean, and the U.S. is running military exercises every year where they where, where they literally uh, um, do a mock attack of Russia, including nuclear weapons on the border of Russia. Can you imagine if Russia was on, in Mexico and Canada every year? They had their troops based there and they were actually going through drills oh, to yeah. practice annihilating the United that States. Would, uh, with nuclear that would drive weapons. us crazy. Yeah, I mean, this is the thing is like at this particular point in time, as many people as possible need to have the world the right side up. Yeah. Whatever you think about Russia or China um, and whatever you think about the relationship between countries in the world right now, the U.S. The US is trying to accuse Russia and China of being the aggressors. Russia's military budget is one tenth size of the United States. China's budget is one fifth the size of the United States. And if we're to be totally honest, a lot of that is um, defensive. Right. No, totally. I mean, all right. I'd like to remind my viewers and listeners that they have got TMI with Aldous Tyler. We are having a conversation with John Beecham. He's got a book, 2020 Socialism and the Coming Great Crisis. You can find it at mass-action.org. John, I really want to thank you for coming on and talking about all these things here today. Uh, could I perhaps count on you coming back sometime? Oh, it'd be my pleasure, actually. I really enjoyed the conversation. Excellent. All right. Thank you so much, John. And again, mass-action.org, good place to check out what John's up to. Has his own podcast. So, hey, if you like the conversation we've been having, you can hear his voice a little bit more over there, too. All right, John, thanks for coming. Thank you. You're welcome. You've been listening to TMI with Aldous Tyler. We'll be right back. I imagine that right now you're feeling a bit like Alice. Tumbling down the rabbit hole? You're listening to TMI with Aldous Tyler. Yes. On WSUM 91.7 FM in Madison. Hallelujah. My Savior, man. No one person of Jesus Christ. It's your cure for the common media. Airing every Friday at 5 p.m. Central. Podcasting every Monday evening. I like you. I think he likes it. Want some more? Oh, yes. Check out TMI, TMITMI.com for podcasts and all things TMI. I know Kung Fu. Show me.
TMI with Aldous Tyler. So one of the things that I personally have been very um, anxious about, if you will, has been how very set on reopening everyone seems to have been ever since January 20th hit, as if the election of Joe Biden was going to magically suddenly cause everything to be better. Now, allow me to go further and say, yes, Biden's policies by far superior to anything that the Trump administration had going on, but that doesn't make it safe. And it 
seemed that there are many, many people to me, at least that many, many people out there were um, feeling quite happy with the fact that the blue team had control now and were quite ready to go and tell teachers, well, go back to work. You don't have to protest anymore. It's not, you're not, you don't have Trump to protest against. And the teachers and many others who were concerned were like, uh, we weren't protesting against Trump. We were protesting against having a virus uh, thrown at us when we are supposedly essential personnel. And we have already established that we can do virtual learning. Um, but you know what? The official guidance came out saying, oh, um, classrooms aren't going to be any major form of vector for this. No, kids, kids won't really be spreading this. It's, it, it, it doesn't affect kids like that. Everything should be fine. Now, um, anyone with a basic sense of logic can tell you that that just doesn't make any sense. But nonetheless, that was the official guidance. Things were pushed forward. And, um, well, okay, here's a good example. Wisconsin has had one of the lowest case numbers over the past month, uh, some of the lowest sets of case numbers. Um, despite that, we had a uh, daycare situation uh, here in the Madison or Dane County area in the last week where they had to close down because somewhere close to 30 children and workers there uh, came down with COVID and it just spread like wildfire through there. Um, in Michigan, over the past two weeks, they have had an increase of uh, roughly 30% of uh, COVID cases in the schools there. Um, so what was supposedly not a major vector is turning out to be a hazard and a half. Um, now, before you think I'm getting all alarmist about this. One of the things you really need to understand is that, yes, we have vaccinations happen, uh, happening right now. And yes, uh, more people are being vaccinated. But we've always been told that until we achieve at least, at least 70% herd immunity, we are going to have to be very careful about this virus. And according to all figures I've been able to see anywhere, we've reached at most 25%. That is not even half. That's barely one third of 70. Um, we, we, we can't just sit back on our laurels, but we are. We're reopening. We're pushing everything. Uh, Disneyland is, is looking at easing its restrictions on face masks. But meanwhile... Between the vaccinations and the fact that, you know, um, we've figured out how to deal with the coronavirus in various ways, coronavirus wards at local hospitals are increasingly being populated by younger, still unvaccinated adults who've let their guard down. Um, Dr. Anthony Fauci, you remember him, right? Director of National Institutes of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, chief medical advisor to Joe Biden now. He said uh, Tuesday at the National Press Club, it's premature to declare a victory. We're seeing more and more young people get into serious trouble, namely severe disease requiring hospitalization and occasionally even tragic deaths in quite young people. Now, Fauci's warning 
echoed earlier remarks by Dr. Rochelle Walensky, the head of the Federal Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, the CDC. Walensky said, We are now entering our fourth week of increased trends in cases. The trends and data have been indicating cases are increasing nationally, and we're seeing this occur predominantly in younger adults. In particular, Walensky said, many outbreaks in young people are related to youth sports and extracurricular activities that involve their parents. Part of the problem is that Americans have become less afraid of catching COVID-19, even though, like I said, we're talking at most 25%, I think it's maybe even closer to 20% that have been fully vaccinated. In a recent Gallup poll, just 35% of Americans responding to a survey uh, done in mid-March said they're worried about contracting the coronavirus. So let me get this, put this in, in perspective for you. You have a group of 20 people. Of those 20 people, um, 13 of them don't really uh, have much concern about contracting COVID-19 at this point. That's a, a huge drop from February um, and well below the uh, 59% record that was set. And so, so basically let me just clarify this again. So right now, 13 out of 20 people on average aren't worried about COVID in, um, in uh, February, that was 50, 50. You, you had 10 people out of 10 that weren't worried about it. Um, and prior to that, you know, the, the, the record has been, no matter what, unfortunately, here in America, that of if you have any 20 people, only uh, about um, 12 of them were concerned, where eight of them were not. So that we still have always had a large amount of people who just didn't care, which is unfortunate, but still. Now, the biggest decline of people who are not concerned were people over 65, probably because that's the group most likely to be vaccinated. But there were big drops in percentages of people that were worried about catching the virus in um, the uh, 18 to 44 and 44 to 64 groups. Now, meanwhile, COVID-19 outbreaks linked to younger people have shut down daycare centers, like I said, not just here in Wisconsin, but Nebraska as well, caused cases to quadruple in at least one Connecticut town. Uh, in states like Florida, Pennsylvania, Maryland, the number of younger people in hospital COVID-19 wards is on the rise. Uh, Marna Borgstrom, I should say, CEO of Yale New Haven Health, recently told uh, NBC News in Connecticut, what we are seeing is patients in their 20s, 30s, and 40s. And let's be clear, when we're talking about patients, we mean we're, we're talking people who up until this point in the, in the pandemic hadn't been coming in to hospitals because they weren't feeling that sick. They are now. Uh, in Chicago, the city's public health commissioner, Dr. Allison Al uh, Arwady, warned that younger adults are pushing the COVID-19 metrics to a level not seen since October. Arwady said, even if there are more cases in young people, we are still seeing that translate into an increase in hospitalizations. She continued, I'm concerned, and I hope everybody's concerned when they look at this data. But nowhere is the spread of COVID-19 
um, among, you know, younger folks, well, non-geriatrics, let's just say, more pronounced than in Michigan. Right now, Michigan leads the nation in hospitalizations among younger, unvaccinated people. That's according to the latest figures from the CDC. Why Michigan? Well, it's it's not just because the state's grappling with the spread of a highly infectious COVID-19 variant that's second only to Florida. Uh, Michigan Health Department spokeswoman Lynn Sutfin told local media on Monday, the surge in cases Michigan is experiencing is a combination of factors, uh, variants of COVID, outbreaks amongst schools and sporting teams, and a high case rate among 10 to 19-year-olds, and now increasing rates among all age groups through 59. And, of course, COVID fatigue, which is another cute way of saying, we just are so sick of the pandemic, we don't care anymore. Well, the problem is the pandemic doesn't care if you don't care, and will make you ill anyway. In an interview last week with NBC News, Michigan public health expert Marianne Udell-Phillips said the surge in new COVID-19 cases is directly related to the return of youth sports. It's not happening on the field, she said. Um, It's happening in transit and afterward when people are getting together and eating, not wearing masks. It's happening at parties where people are socializing. While Michigan public health experts have been urging Governor Gretchen Whitmer to keep the mask mandate and other restrictions in place, an advocacy group for student-athletes and their parents, called Let Them Play, has sued the Director of State Health and Human Services Department, Elizabeth Ertl, over a new pandemic order that requires rapid testing for COVID-19 for all youth athletes of ages 13 to 19. Seriously. I mean, okay, let let me just... Make sure that I'm really clear here. If you want youth sports to happen, that's great. That's uh, totally cool for you and your kids. But you have to make sure your kids are safe and you have to make sure that you aren't endangering other people by demanding your kids are able to go play when you don't know whether or not they're passing on a pandemic deadly virus. Robert Bensley, a professor of public health at Western Michigan University, told the Detroit Free Press, It seems like there are a lot of people in Michigan who just want to fight Whitmer and don't want to follow the protocols. They think it isn't real or that it's some kind of hoax. They won't get vaccinated and they could get COVID and they might be transmitting a variant that could be deadly. Michigan has seen some of the fiercest resistance to pandemic restrictions and Whitmer a Democrat, wound up being the target of what authorities have described as a right-wing kidnapping plot. Uh, Allow me to further that. It's been very clear, if you look at the evidence of the plot, uh, various plots against Whitmer, that it wasn't just kidnapping, but they intended to torture and kill her as well. Now, in Michigan, right now, they're up to about 19.5% of their residents that have been fully vaccinated. Something you really need to know about these vaccinations, uh, the big thing they do is they decrease the severity of the infection if you get infected with COVID-19. They do not stop you from being able to be infected, and they do not stop you 
from being able to pass it on to other people. They just make sure you're much less likely to need hospitalization. So these vaccines, they're good for your health. And eventually they will wind the virus down. But we can't recklessly reopen everything right away. And these people that fight for it are just as evil as they've ever been. And by evil, I mean selfish, because that is the root of it. Selfish. If you want so badly to go out and socialize, if you want so badly to have your kids playing sports, if you want so badly to go out and be amongst other people without taking any necessary precautions, that selfish you know it's deadly, and that means that selfishness is evil. That's all there is to it. You're listening to TMI with Aldous Tyler. We'll be right back.
Tyler. Then some lighter-hearted news for you here in the kind of a dark episode. Um, I'm happy to tell you that so long as you're speaking the French language in France, it is now illegal to discriminate against you based on your accent. That's right, you might not be speaking the perfect Parisian French accent. You might be speaking something from the region of Toulouse. Or uh, for that matter, you might be more of a provincial accent. Or for that matter, good old French-Canadian Quebecan. But the fact is, a law has been passed now saying, whatever your accent, if you're speaking French, you should be treated as someone who is speaking the language of the land. Now, this all came about because back in October of 2018, a French-wing politician by the name of Jean-Luc Mélenchon was asked a question by a reporter working for a uh, broadcaster there about recent police searches carried out at the home and the premises of his, of his party. And uh, now Mélenchon didn't want to talk about this. It was a thinly veiled attempt to deflect attention away from the corruption investigation when he started openly mocking the accent of the reporter. Asking, well, what does that mean? What's your question? Does anyone have a, a question formulated in French that's more or less understandable? Because your level exceeds me. I don't understand you. He was saying sarcastically. Now, that footage sent shockwaves across France. The, the, the National Union of Journalists issued a statement condemning what they called verbal violence and gratuitous humiliation, um, saying that the comments showed a deep contempt for the country, its territories, and its diversity. Now, for many, the incident was an important turning point in how accents are perceived in France, where diverse historical and cultural influences from the 10th century Norse Viking invaders in the north to the vibrant post-colonial diaspora communities from West Africa, the Maghreb, beyond, they all have a huge linguistic variety. So what happened was in November, the legislation officially known as the law to promote the France of accents made its way to a vote in France's national assembly overwhelming support saw the bill adopted by 98 votes to three criminalizing accent discrimination. So it's one of those things where, you know, uh, I mean, some people could even con uh, consider it a form of racism, especially if you're talking about the accents from Africa, where the French has been mixed in with some of the more local dialects. Um, but basically they're saying straight up right now, if you discriminate against someone in France for their French, uh, their, their version of French, um, for their accent specifically, you can get up to three years jail time and a fine of roughly $54,000 U.S. Now it's inscribed as an offense under France's, France's labor and penal codes. So, I mean, this might not seem like a big thing, but honestly, why not? Let's just treat each other like people when we're trying to communicate with each other. And if you want to see the world for what it is, remember, all you have to do is simply... Oh!